0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
2: Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast.
0: So uh, the news is that Canada's economy stalled. You know that second quarter. This according to Statscan. So what does this mean to the average Canadian and what does it mean to the economic outlook? Were we expecting it? Are we surprised? And then there was the story about uh, CIBC reporting that there are one million undercount of Canadian residents, a million people undercounted. What does that mean to our economy? What does it mean to the housing crisis? Um, what does it mean to the national and provincial economies? And then BC Premier Eby has called on the Bank of Canada to end raising interest rates. So what's the most likely scenario for the Canadian economy over the next 12 months? And how might Canadians prepare? We're joined by Professor Eric Cam, macroeconomics professor at Toronto Metropolitan University, our quote to Guy, on the economy. Please, Eric, answer all of that in 30 seconds. Well, actually,
3: what I'd like to do is back up for a second and tell you about a story you might really appreciate. And I don't think I appreciated it until this morning, which was about five years ago. I was in Fort Lauderdale with my friend, and we were just driving around aimlessly. And I said, what's that? That place looks like fun. And he said, that's actually Jimmy Buffett's bar. He owns a bar. And I said, oh, cool. Let's go check out Jimmy Buffett's bar. We got there, and lo and behold, Jimmy Buffett's playing.
0: (laughs) Oh, no kidding.
3: And he played for about 90 minutes. Uh, a good chunk of his song people sang along, people were drinking and having fun. And to be honest with you, I never really, really, I never thought about it too much until this morning when I realized I was never going to do it again. And I'm just really lucky that I had that 90-minute experience in my life.
0: Yes, you are. And, and you know, I, I like I said earlier, I became a Jimmy Buffett fan the first time I heard Come Monday. I always wanted to go and see him in person. I always wanted to go down to Key West. But I never made it, and I'm so sorry. Maybe I could have done it. I just didn't do it. But he also, I found out this morning, had great t- family ties in Canada, Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, Newfoundland particularly. Didn't know that.
3: I, I'm like you. I, I, I've learned more about Jimmy Buffett in the last four or five hours than I do in my uh, my whole life. I had the, uh, the luxury this morning of being up at 4 a.m. As you know, I dropped my daughter off at Queens University. So,
0: Are you so, crying?
3: No um, so comment. But in all of the downtime, uh, I've been able to listen to stories about Jimmy Buffett. And you know what? I know that my 90 minutes doesn't make a whole life, but he kind of was what he said he was. He just looked relaxed, and he wore his comfortable button-down jerseys with the parrots on them. And he, you could just tell he was a genuine article, and we're losing way too many, Roy. Rest in peace.
0: Yeah, it's pretty cool when millions of people like you, but the critics don't. (laughs) The music critics had no time for Jimmy Buffett, but the rest of us, we parrot heads. And that, by the way, uh, that term came about during a concert in Ohio when Timothy B. Schmidt, who was one of his uh, band members, noticed everybody, So he'd been noticing over some period of time that Buffett fans at the concert were wearing parrot hats and parrot paraphernalia. And he said, they're all parrot heads. And there it was born.
3: And there you go. And he was a legend. And, you know, Monday was one of his best songs. And yes, sir. And we have an interest rate announcement. I'm trying to make my segues better. And I don't know what's going to happen, Roy. I think it's 50-50. Until about a day ago, I thought they were going to raise rates 0.25 one more time. And that still wouldn't shock me. But, no, know, nobody should be surprised at what they're seeing now, Roy. I mean, you can only... Uh, You know, you can only step on something so many times before you eventually hurt it. And we've brought the prime up from 0.25 to 5 in a ridiculously um, uh, low number of months. And so eventually, it just eventually, if economics works, then consumption and investment, spending by households and firms, has to fall, and now it has. So now, you know, I don't get too big out of shape, Roy, because The fall in GDP, they're saying things like 0.2%. Well, guess what? That's a rounding error. That's pretty close to zero. But the point is, they wanted real GDP to stop growing. Real GDP has stopped growing. And we know that if it stops growing for two consecutive quarters, then we have to use that R word that no one likes to use. I don't mean the former name of my university. I mean the other one. So I think we've got to be, you know, we always say we've got to be careful. Now we are where the Bank of Canada wanted us to be. They wanted the rise in gross domestic product to stop for a while to bring prices down even more. Here we are. What's going to happen on Wednesday? I really think this one's a point toss
0: Okay, so Eric, here's a question I wanted to ask you for some period of time, and I never did, and I, I don't know why. It was just kind of floated around in my head. Never quite made it to my mouth. And I'm not an economist, so don't please don't think of me as being uninformed. I'm reasonably informed, but I don't know much about economics as... Uh, as as my life journey would tell you, um, but would there have been a, a, would it have been a plan, a possibility for the Bank of Canada to not so incrementally raise the interest rate if they really wanted to put the brakes on the economy or the spending, overheated economy? Would it have been possible to do like a one percent or two percent hike as, at, at, at one at one go, or would that just be catastrophic?
3: No not really catastrophic. The Bank of Canada, to be honest, Roy, not to deflect the question, the Bank of Canada can do whatever the heck it wants. It's the, it's the central bank of our country. They can go 0.25 at a time. They could have gone right up to five at once and, and really seen you know, the you-know-what uh, hit the fan. They've just decided that they were going to go on a slow, almost linear pace. And I don't have a problem with the linear pace. I have a problem with how upward sloping that linear pace was. I think that it is, it is homeowners, and renters and people that feed children that have really taken it on the chin with respect to the speed of what they've done. I'm I'm on the record. I am not opposed to raising the rate. They had to if they were ever going to bring down the inflation rate. We've got to get back to price stability. My criticism is on the speed. I'm afraid that you have far too many people far too close to insolvency because of the speed of this, Roy.
0: If we get another, was it 0.25 hike? in the interest rate is that going to be noticed is it going to depress people would it would it push people to uh, actions they maybe shouldn't take what exactly would that mean never mind to the big institutions but the to, to the people like like me and you know those of us who look at our bank accounts and say crying out loud there should be more money in there
3: and that's way too many Canadians, Roy. and that's actually what this is all about. You know, you often hear people on that side of the, uh, the aisle, the banks, and, and, and people saying, you know, 0.25 isn't that big a deal. 0.25 is a huge deal. And for some people, it can be the difference between what they can, it just can no longer pay. For some people, it can hit, put you onto what's called the trigger rate, where you're no longer paying any principal on your mortgage. And this is why I would implore the Bank of Canada now to really to put a hold on things. The calendar year, hard to believe, is almost over. You've already raised it 10 times in a ridiculously short period of time. And what I don't want to see, long-winded as I am, is just said before the break, and by the way, thanks, I'm the farthest thing from uh, from Brilliant, that you have scaringly too many people that can't raise $500, yeah. scaringly too many people who are $200 away from solvency. And do we really want them? To push the rest of the people right off the cliff. Because as I pointed out before, not to be too repetitive, four out of five mortgages in Canada have not been renegotiated since the rate increases. And there, you know, I said it before, blood in the streets. This is the blood in the street scenario. What are we going to do when when 80% of the countries starts to renegotiate their mortgage and you just keep pushing that number higher and higher? I don't think it's sustainable. I'm not sure it's sustainable now, but I know that as a start, as a start, we have to keep the rate where it is.
0: Yeah, just give people a little bit of a sense of uh, optimism. You know, when David Eby says uh, to the Bank of Canada, Premier of BC, please don't raise the interest rate again. He's saying what you've said. He's saying it differently. But I like what you said. I like the metaphor. So if you raise the interest rate again, you're going to push, maybe stampede, some of the people who have a few bucks in their bank account, like me. Um, I'm not too unhappy with my bank account anyway, but I'm telling you, it could be better. Um, but, but, But then they start to move toward the cliff, and they push people over who are at the edge, and we do not want that. That's a great metaphor. So what about the CIBC report, Eric? One million undercount of residents in Canada. What's the impact on the national economy, the provincial economies, and let's go for it, from the housing crisis?
4: Well...
3: First of all, I'd like to know how how this came about. I mean, this is quite a massive oversight. This isn't uh, this isn't forgetting to move the decimal point, you know. Because this is a big, big number. It is a big course, number. A, and and what I don't like is the fear mongering, Roy. Right? I mean, talk about the housing crisis. Sure, want to make the housing crisis worse. It can make a lot of things worse. But it also the number one thing it makes worse is that the economy does not need any more negative expectations. Because one of the things we haven't discussed. Are the rule of negative expectations, which make everything a little bit worse. And so you have CIBC, who, trust me, they're not too worried about much. They come out and they say, "Well, we have we've underreported by a million people. That's a million mouths to feed, a million people we have to to house and clothe." And I'm just, I'd like to know the motivation for why this report why now? Because, you know, it's almost, I don't want to say obvious, but it, it's going to exacerbate every problem in the economy. So my question is to CIBC, why now? What for? And what did you have to gain by letting this out? Because this is a bank and they don't do things that aren't part of their profit maximization function.
0: Yeah, why now? I, I remember doing an interview, I think it was two years ago, with uh, the vice president for thought at RBC. And they had just put out a a 22, I think it's 22-page report on the road to net zero. And there was a line in that report that got my attention. And I asked about it. The other stuff was interesting, but this line got me. And the line was, Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Hello? What exactly? And I mean exactly, underscored, italics, and bold. What does that mean? Canadians are going to have to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Specifics, please. I didn't get any.
3: It's rhetoric. It is absolutely political and economic rhetoric to say that we are a long, long way away from economic stability. Things are going to get much worse before they get better. And that's almost cryptically telling the population to hold on to your hat. And as someone who doesn't worry about the banks, because I don't care, I worry about people that want to house and feed their families. Those types of messages, along with CIBC's message, what are you trying to do? Who are you trying to scare, and why?
0: Yeah. By the way, don't send me any packages. I'm fine. I sometimes say things, and then people send me like gifts, and I mean, send me gifts if you want, but don't really need them. Hey, love One final thought here, Pop. You're uh, you're you're you said you just dropped your daughter off at university. Are you are you crying?
3: Um, I kind of got that out of my system on the way here. Uh, It didn't help when she started. Listen, it's a tremendous day. It's one of those days that as a parent, you dream about. And, you know, 19 years ago when Nurse Jamie said, hey, it's a Sydney. And I looked at my wife and she looked at me and we're like, wow, we have this baby girl. Um, You know this day is coming. Um, And you, at the same time, you celebrate it and you dread it. And I just I looked at her this morning and I said, to be blunt, this is costing a fortune. Earn it. Enjoy it. And you get out of it what you put into it, so put in
0: a lot. Yeah, you're a good guy. You're a good dad. You're a good family man. You're a good guy, and you're a great economist. Thank you, you're Dr. Right. Eric Kam. Thank you, Roy. So, as you know, the Northwest Territories and British Columbia extended the state of emergency, states of emergency, this week. Uh, but the Northwest Territories government has announced Yellowknife residents and residents of a First Nation nearby will begin to be permitted to return home next week. Details are not readily available yet, but there'll be a news conference later today on those details on the return to Yellowknife and the First Nation. So I was, uh, and wildfires continue to burn in proximity to the city. So how have the evacuees from Yellowknife and elsewhere in the Northwest Territories been faring away from their homes and their work and their careers? Many have lost salaries and worry about jobs perhaps not being available on their return. Now, two weeks ago, we spoke with Donna Lynn Baskin, who with her daughter drove from Yellowknife to Calgary through the night, uh, flames encroaching on the one highway, linking the Northwest Territories southward the premier of the Northwest Territories, had that out with Trudeau the other day. And um, she, she's back on the air with us. Donna Lynn Baskin is back on the Roy Green Show. How are you, Donna Lynn?
4: Hi, Roy. I'm fine, and I'm, I'm doing well, thank you.
0: So we, we've come a long way since two weeks ago when you and I talked after you just arrived in Calgary from yes. Long and there was concern the city could be lost.
4: Yes, and that immediate fear has dissipated. And they were able to build much larger fire breaks and the wind sort of, I guess, blew in our favor, you might say. Um, although the winds this weekend are back up again, um, but it does appear that Yellowknife itself is unlikely to have, to lose structures. Fort Smith and Hay River are still under immediate threat. Um, But Yellowknife itself is downgraded in terms of that immediacy.
0: So, have you been told anything about the circumstances under which you will be allowed to return?
4: No. (laughs) Nothing more than the rest of you know. Okay. Um, We heard uh, from a press conference yesterday, um, our mayor had said that. Any time after the sixth, people could start coming home, but she strongly encouraged in in her statements that we be mindful of the fact that you know it's, it's twenty two thousand people trying to return all at once, and that um, perhaps let the people that have sheltered in northern Alberta make their way back first. But that was the most. It was um, it was not. Uh, specific. It was just sort of giving us a date to cling to, but we are still waiting for specifics.
0: Yeah, it's going to be difficult to persuade people to not go as soon as the road is available, because everybody wants to get home, wants to check their homes, wants to feel at home again. That's just just human nature.
4: It is, and I think um, we've all been placed in this uh, position where we weren't even, I, it was stressful, but I don't think I expected the degree of stress I would feel. Um, even though I myself, I have a secure position, um, so I don't have the same um, worries that some people do. I, I'm in a very blessed position that way. But still, the anxiety has taken a great toll. Um, I think, as, as I've heard others mention, this has been more um, impactful than the, the pandemic was in terms of that the, the, the anxiety and the worry that everyone has gone through. Um, and I think it is being disrupted from your own location without any clear sense of when you're going back. Um, for many, of course, that is aggravated exponentially by financial concerns, um, but just for everyone, the the being away without a sense of when to go home is just, um, it's a level of worry I'd never fully understood before, and it really gives me a new appreci- appreciation for what refugees under much more severe circumstances
0: experience. Mm-hmm. Now, not only, uh, not knowing when you're going back, but not knowing what you're going to find when you get back.
4: Well, that's true. Although I'm no longer concerned for um, my my residents still being there, um, we really have no idea as to whether or not there have been break in entries or any of those conditions. The other thing too is that the city was completely shut down, except for what was necessary to keep emergency services going. Mm-hmm. So when we return, the things that we take for granted are not going to be up and running right away. So we're probably, you know, we're coming to terms with the fact that as we go back, we're going back to a situation that is still going to be very tumultuous.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just trying to think of uh, you know how you feel. People when when people go on a vacation for two weeks. And they're in a place they're having fun and they, uh, you know, they're enjoying themselves. There's still that, but you, there's still that calling to go home, right? There's still that need to go home.
4: But there's also when you go on vacation, you, you go having planned for it,
0: right? Of Um, course. You
4: have a specific time frame in mind. And at no point in the back of your mind do you anticipate being prevented from returning home. Right. And uh, I think that many people at the very beginning, especially with children, trying their very best to to take on a vacation atmosphere. But you know as as we were in the cities watching other children start school, some parents have made the decision to enroll their children down here. Um, I know that even with this call back home, a lot of people are reconsidering whether or not they actually will return to the North. Um, this, has, this has been a very disruptive and I would say very negative experience. Not including the... I mean, the treatment that we have received here in Alberta has been astounding. It, it, we have been welcomed by... Um, the minute they see the, the license plate on my car or if it comes up in conversation where we're from, we are just treated like long lost family. It's wonderful. But the uh, experience of not, um, of leaving without any real planning um, and feeling as though that uh, level of planning doesn't exist for our return home has caused many people to really reconsider. Um, what it means to work in and live in the North and raise their families there. So unfortunately, I have talked with a lot of younger professionals that are um, actively seeking employment to remain in the communities where they've sheltered. They've enrolled their children. So I think that when we get back, we're also going to see a very changed uh, social landscape for, from what we left.
0: Yeah, I was wondering about that. And I was wondering about people who would say, don't want to do this again, or maybe they were they were thinking about leaving in any event, and this has been what's pushed them over the edge. But uh, I, I, that thought it had entered my mind. Yeah. yeah.
4: Well, and one of the things um, that is inevitable is that a number of small businesses are likely not going to survive this when we get back. Um, many people may not have jobs to return to. Um, I know my own daughter that I traveled down with. Um, She has made the choice to stay here. She's enrolled her son in school. She's actively seeking employment. Um, It's unlikely that her position um, where she was working will still exist. Um, Because being um, out of business for three weeks is a, a nice stage that most small businesses cannot survive. And then you compound that with the real reality that when we go back, what was already a fairly expensive uh, cost of living is is going to be dramatically higher, just based on all of the uh, sort of domino effect of the of this uh, evacuation, and that that evacuation is extenuating for um, the communities south of us. Yeah. Um, they are, those roads are going to remain very volatile up and down, um, which in, immediately impacts the cost of everything for us because there is only one road up for groceries and gasoline and all the other things that are trucked. They have only one route, the same route we take. So.
0: I also asked if anybody who, anyone else who has evacuated from uh, Northwest Territories, and uh, would like to join us to just call us. Kelsey, uh, Donna Lynn, please uh, hold on. Please and un- uh, become in- involved in this conversation, too. Kelsey is with us from uh, Hay River in the Northwest Territories. Kelsey, thank you for calling. How are you?
5: I'm good. Thank you.
0: What are your, I mean, you've been listening to Donna Lynn and uh, my questions. And how are things in your community? When will you be able to return? Do you know? Mm-hmm.
5: I don't think there's a set date yet. Um, I think a lot of people are very anxious to get home. However, I know that everybody that has feet on the ground right now is working extremely hard to get us back to the community. Um, right now, I think the priority is just limiting the risk to our community. Uh, there has been homes that have been lost just outside the town of Hue River. Um, so those people are already dealing with that and then they're just trying to reduce any further damage to anyone's homes, um, within the town limits as well. So as much as, yes, I want to go home. I am extremely grateful for all the people that are working really hard to protect our community and, um, hunkering down in Calgary. Thankfully we get to stay with family here and, um, they've been extremely supportive. So we're, uh, we're just, you know, hoping to get home, but also, trying to be patient because I know that everybody is doing their best to get us there.
0: Yeah. Tell us a bit about Hay River.
5: Hay River is a beautiful community. It's a very tight knit, um, smaller community. So there's about 3,500 people, I believe. Um, I've lived in Hay River. I moved from Victoria, BC to Hay River when I was 20. So I've lived there 18 years, almost half my life. And, um, it's a, it's a great community. Everybody really looks out for each other. It's It's a beautiful place to raise children. Um, It's just a really active involved community so it's tough to know um that there's people out there that have are struggling by being evacuated um but i think that we're doing our best to support each other and it's uh hard when you're kind of spread out all over the place i know that there's people kind of all over alberta like thank goodness for alberta because they've really put themselves out there to support everyone from the northwest territories it's been great but um yeah i think we're just everybody in hay river is looking out for each other and looking forward to getting back home.
0: Yeah. Everybody wants to go home. Um, why don't you talk to each other? Kelsey from Hay River, Donna Lynn Baskin from Yellowknife? Life. You're both North Northwest Territory uh, residents. Uh, let me step well, aside it's here. nice
4: to meet you, Kelsey. I, Hi. I wish uh, we were meeting in person under different circumstances. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like
5: I'm like I was, I do watch the news and I watch the NWT fire updates and, It sounds like Yellowknife is somewhat set to go back soon. (laughs) Yeah. Not really. It's not 100% clear, but (laughs) But it looks like it.
4: Of course, um, Northern Alberta, as you know, like the the fires have hit cabin, um, uh, you know, the uh, Indian cabin and further on. So the roads are opening and closing constantly. And so I think that's part of the delay. Yeah.
0: You know, everybody's. Know they, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I
4: was just
5: going to say. I know for some of the essential workers, like uh, from the hospital and, and whatnot, they've been asking people to leave their vehicles and to fly back to Yellowknife. So I can't imagine the like, the stress of that as well. Like, we've already been evacuated. You guys have been evacuated, and then to ask to leave your belongings behind and fly back, and it just it seems mm-hmm. like a lot of. Uh, lot of working it is. part yeah. to get everybody I, back especially I'm with the yellow being such a larger
4: community like for hey river have been, when we um, evacuated have it was like that. intense okay they they've gone back that because they're they're committed to what their their work is but they are very concerned about how do they get back um and the additional cost of this
0: Jeff Conacher is the co-founder of Democracy Watch, and uh, we're going to talk about a number of issues with Jeff. Thankfully, we have Democracy Watch, because they keep an eye and uh, watch in our democracy. They also need, he hasn't asked me to say this, it's, not, it's, a, it's an expensive organization to run, representing uh, the interests of Canadian people. So if you can uh, contribute 10 bucks, 20 bucks, something to uh, DW, it will help a great deal. Duff, what's the what's the uh, where does where can people make the contributions? Let's start with that.
1: DemocracyWatch.ca. That's the website, and You know, will see a donate button and also campaigns button where they can easily send a letter to federal party leaders and their provincial politicians and premier calling for these needed changes across the country to close okay. all the. Many, many loopholes that allow for dishonest, unethical, secretive, unrepresentative, and wasteful actions by politicians and government officials.
0: Democracywatch.ca. Let's start with this story. that high-level judges may have paid to meet Trudeau, Mr. Trudeau before their appointments. Can you just walk us through this?
1: Yes. It's a research by the National Post and a new outfit called the Investigative Journalism Foundation. They spent eight months looking through the databases of donors uh, from 2016 on, and found that since the Trudeau Liberals have been in power, there were six judges who attended the the top level uh, donor events, where you need to be donating the maximum amount allowed each year, which has been between 1,500 and 1,700 dollars over the last five years uh, through the period they were looking for through and uh, they found that six judges had attended these top level uh, liberal fundraising events, and then they ended up being appointed judges and they also did a broader research and found that uh, there were twenty percent of the judges that were appointed were liberal donors, and that's more much more than donors to any other party. so it just reveals more evidence of how partisan political and cabinet-controlled the appointment of judges is, which is obviously very serious. Because the judges are there to be impartially and independently upholding and enforcing the law, and it just kind of taints the whole system, how partisan and political it is.
0: Does it ever. Um, but this goes. This isn't just this year or the, the last couple of years. I mean, in 2019, there was an issue with Dominic LeBlanc, who's the uh, public safety minister, has some other titles as well, who uh, and it was Democracy Watch that filed the complaint against Dominic LeBlanc over his connections to judicial appointments in Nova Scotia or New Brunswick, rather. There were six with uh, wasn't it connections to him, his family, the Liberal Party, and the and the Writing Association and his writing. With it. remind us, yes, please, yes. What, what, what went on there?
1: Uh, well, we don't know exactly because no. uh, the Ethics Commissioner essentially refused to investigate. So we still don't know the truth of that situation. And at that same time, a person who worked for the justice minister on the issue of judicial appointments left the office because he was upset with how partisan and political the process was. And he took a USB uh, stick with him with email government emails on it and has revealed those slowly to the media. Uh, And they're part of the basis of a lawsuit that Democracy Watch has going on right now, challenging the federal judicial appointment system for being too partisan and political, and and therefore, as a result, unconstitutional and a violation of our charter rights to have impartial and independent courts and and judges. And uh, so we're at the Court of Appeal with that lawsuit right now. And uh, this is more information that's come out from this study by the Post and uh, Investigative Journalism Foundation. And uh, it just adds more fuel to the fire about how uh, smelly and political the, the process is for appointing judges. And not just appointing judges, but appointing all the democracy watchdogs, all the key law enforcement people, the R- RCMP, the Access to Information Commissioner, Whistleblower Protection Officer Ethics Commissioner, lobbying watchdog, the, the Auditor General even, the head of Elections Canada, all appointed through secretive, cabinet-controlled, partisan, and political processes.
0: Star Chamber. Sorry? Star Chamber.
1: It is, and and the law says they're supposed to be consulting with opposition parties on uh, these appointments before they're made, but uh, we found out through other lawsuits challenging the appointment of the Ethics Commissioner and Lobbying Commissioner that The uh, Liberals actually had several qualified candidates for each position, but told the opposition parties they only had one person that was qualified and that they were going to appoint that person in a week, (laughs) no matter what the opposition party said. Well,
0: isn't that breaking parliamentary law?
1: Well, we went to court and said to the court, that's not consultation. You look at the dictionary definition of consultation and it says, You're supposed to be making a decision together with, you know, taking into account the viewpoints of others. Mm -hmm. And they didn't. They sent one name to them uh, and said, here's the person. We're appointing them in a week. The Liberals just appointed an interim ethics commissioner Mm -hmm. for six months um, as the process continues to look for uh, an ethics commissioner that will serve for the next seven years. And there's no consultation with that. So they've, again, they've just chosen their own watchdog. And when you allow them to do that, they're. Very likely to choose a lapdog who's going to roll over and cover up any wrongdoing that they find, yeah. and and uh, we have both the ethics commissioner and lobbying commissioner in court challenging rulings they've made about the Trudeau cabinet and lobbyists connected to the Trudeau cabinet. Yeah, so, so they they rolled over and covered up wrongdoing in both those cases.
0: What are the chances the watchdog is going to bite the guy with the cookies in his pocket?
1: That's, that's the thing. When someone hands you a, a job for seven years worth more than $200,000 a year, then that's a huge favor to someone. They, obviously, they want the job because they've applied for it, and then they're handed it by the very cabinet that they watch over. It just has to change, and it's it's done in better ways. In uh, Quebec, for example, for appointing judges, the committee that comes up with the short list of uh, one to three qualified people for each Uh, position that's open as a judge in Quebec is not a committee that is appointed by the the ruling party minister or even any politician. It's independent of the political parties. Mm -hmm. In British Columbia, it's an all party committee that makes these appointments of democracy. But
0: you're talking Ottawa here and you're talking the current government and they just like to have it their way, you know, and this, this ethics commissioner issue is really troubling because Mr. Trudeau has twice been convicted of ethics violations, by um, by uh, ethics commissioners. One he appointed directly, and the other one might as well have been directed by him or appointed by him. Duff, thank you very much. It's DemocracyWatch.ca. All right,
1: that's right, and we'll keep you updated on our court case and also uh, our challenges trying to get a more independent process for appointing all these key democracy watchdogs, like the ethics commissioner.
0: So I spoke a bit in the last hour about Jess Rochelle, who passed away this week. The Canadian Armed Forces Private, who was recommended for Canada's highest military honor, the Canadian Victoria Cross, for his valor in a battle against Taliban insurgents in Afghanistan in 2006. Lieutenant General Omer Lavois was the command officer on the battlefield that day, and he was a guest on this program. And here's how he described, here's how General Lavois described Private Rochelle's. Valor.
1: Just, despite being wounded as well from that same RPG attack, had the professionalism, the wherewithal, the tactical acumen, and the courage to arm and fire several uh, M72 rockets, which are a a light sort of anti-tank rocket that uh, infantry soldiers carry, and that certainly broke the attack uh, of the Taliban because it's not something you want to have as incoming incoming fire. And then, once you know, after done that, and despite despite being wounded, then got onto his C six machine gun and then just started pouring down a, a lethal, uh, beaten zone of fire in, in the direction of where the Taliban were.
0: That was just a small portion. You can uh, you can listen to the whole interview at globalnews.ca slash roy green uh, in the interview section. But I also posted it a link to it on uh, my Twitter feed at the Roy Green Show today. That was, was, was just a minor description of a tremendous battle that Jess LaRochelle fought alone. It's just a, just an incredible, remarkable young man who just died. Uh, General Rick Hillier was on this program with my next guest as well, speaking about uh, Jess and, and recommending him for the Canadian Victoria Cross, but still the military and uh, political elites refused. Um, Bruce Monker is a former CAF member. He's the founder of the Afghanistan Veterans Association of Canada, who led the support for Private La Rochelle to receive the, Can- the Canadian Victoria Cross. Bruce was also critically wounded in a friendly fire incident in Afghanistan. Bruce, thank you for coming on. It just shook me when you sent me that uh, email and let me know that Jess had died. Um, condolences to you and, and all of his friends who knew him well.
2: Oh, thank you, Roy. It it was a shock for everyone. We honestly thought he was, had turned a corner and that his health was getting better. He had just gone to, uh, out, uh, he joined, he got a motorcycle um with his brother and they'd been going out on bike rides and going to veterans event, events and we, uh, it, it came as a shock to us all.
0: Yeah, remind us of what he did in your words that day.
2: Mm-hmm. So, just. Uh, His platoon came into a position called Strong Point Center. Uh, They were shorthanded because shortly before, one of the labs that uh, his platoon had uh, hit an IED or a landmine and was incapacitated, so they were down uh, a full section. Uh, When they got there, they had the information that there was an imminent attack and that uh, they needed somebody to man an observation post. Um, Jess put his hand up and he went out and manned it within mere minutes. An RPG hit Jess's position, knocking him unconscious. When he came to, uh, the Taliban were about to overrun, uh, the position. Two Canadians were dead, seven wounded. And that was when he began, uh, manning a C6 machine gun. Uh, when he got down to his last hundred rounds, He began using single-shot rocket launchers and single-handedly repelled an attack of between 20 to 40 Taliban. Uh, In doing so, uh, the rocket that had knocked him unconscious had actually broken his neck, broken his back, detached his retina, gave him a severe concussion, and he was very severely injured. And yet he still, despite all those injuries, fought off the Taliban uh, it was then that he volunteered to man the observation post for an additional 12 hours, although grievously injured. Um, he then, the next morning, he was relieved from his position and went back to carry the casket of Private Blake Williamson. And it was only after he laid his friend's uh, uh, casket into the uh, Hercules, Hercules plane that he came forward and admitted that he was injured And that's when they realized just how severely he was injured and he was sent home, uh, for the rest of the tour, um, where he had many surgeries and, uh, things to, uh, try to fix the broken neck and broken back.
0: How old was he?
2: He, uh, was 22 years old when that happened.
0: That's the kind of valor that is just stunning. Somebody said to me, I forget what it was, it was like Rambo 2.0, 2.0, but real life. Um, I don't know if that's a a just and appropriate comparison, but people need sometimes to have a visual. What he did was totally heroic, and yet the um, people who make the decisions about the Canadian Victoria Cross, your intervention, fellow veterans intervention, General Hillier's intervention, General Lavois' intervention, notwithstanding, they decided he wasn't worthy, I guess.
2: Yeah, I I honestly feel like the Canadian government um, just doesn't want to set a precedent and they don't want to open a can of worms when they're like, okay, if we give it to Jess, well, what about this guy from World War II or what about this guy from World War One, What about this other Afghanistan veteran? So I honestly feel like they are hesitant to do this because there's going to be so many cases of soldiers who were not properly recognized. And and and, and to be honest, our honors and award system is is quite frankly is broken. There's a lot of the a lot a lot of the parts of the military are broken. But this is uh, is just one additionally. And um, I, I I think it's 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 not that they refuse to do it; it's they refuse to even listen to the reasons why they should do it. And that's, I think, the biggest slap in the face. We haven't, uh, until yesterday, until Jess's death, for the last three years, we hadn't gotten any of the Canadian military to um, Canadian government to actually publicly say his name. And so that was yeah. kind of a, a slap in the face to in terms of respecting you know what this man did and, and for his country. Right. And we want to make sure that that respect is, is given to all of our veterans, especially those that, you know, sacrifice
0: Bruce, much. Bruce, you and I need to talk more, and uh, I want to put together a program where we have you and some other guests you and I will talk about on the air and talk about it. Thank you so much for what you do, and thanks for joining us today.
3: Roy, if I may quickly just say
2: uh, there was no funeral for Jess and his final request was okay. that uh, everyone has a um, bonfire this weekend, so we ask if everyone, all your listeners, if they can have a bonfire and send the pictures in to our social media or to your social media, and if you can get those to us so that we can present them to uh, justice family.
0: Okay, we'll do that, Bruce. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Thanks, Bruce Munger. Send it to uh, to me, Roy at roygreenshow dot com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more.